good morning. We are gathered here for worship, not because it's um, it's uh, it's practical, not because it's a good organizational idea. We're greater in numbers. We're gathering for worship because, one, God commands us to gather for worship. And two, he promises to show up. Like, if you have any question about whether God is going to show. Know that when his people gather together, he's already sort of taken care of that. He said, that's where I'm going to be. You didn't come for a seminar. You didn't come for, you know, a lecture. You came see him. That's why we came. And so as we gather, let's trust him. Let's trust that he's going to do what he promised to do. To show up for you. To show himself to you. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we come before you this morning to thank you and praise you for your mighty works of redemption, the sustenance that you have enacted on our behalf. We come to bring our prayers and petitions before you as you have so generously commanded us to do. Lord, we pray, among the other things that have already been prayed this morning, we pray for the congregations of Christ, the body of Christ, both here in our church, in Cross Point, and in all across our city, and throughout our nation, and throughout this world. We pray that we would be so firmly, you would be so firmly united to your people through the ordinances that are administered and the word that, in your, in your word, be so firmly united to us that Christ is evident in our every word and deed. Father, we pray that you would encourage us, equip us, forgive us, sanctify us, strengthen our families and the fellowship of our congregations. Give us pers perseverance to withstand your trials, the grace to endure your discipline, and the patience and the faithfulness to await your timing when you will make all things new and free us from these bodies of sin that ever weigh us down and cause us all such offense. How we might delight in the prospect of a redeemed heaven and earth and bodies that will age and weaken no longer. And best of all, sin will be no more. 
heaven and earth where we shall see Christ as he is and fear no wrath or rejection where we will remain in his love and his delight for all eternity. Father, we pray that that vision will transform us. Father, we pray that you would continue to gather a people's from all tribes and all tongues, that you would make good on your promise to give the inheritance of the nations to your son, that he would be king over all. Father, we thank you and praise you for your love and your mercy to your people. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as you heard, the book of Ruth, that's what we're going to be going over for the next seven weeks. And it is, this is one of my favorite Old Testament narratives to go through. I mean, I'm anticipating what God will do for us and to us and in us through this word. The book of Ruth reveals, I mean, as all of God's word, right? It reveals this wonderful wisdom of God in this interesting way. You see all kinds of stuff just sort of come together. It weaves this redemption that he provides for his people, right, Israel, But then we also get to see in the book of Ruth, we're going to see this, how the nations, the Gentiles, are gathered into that. And this is sort of where Ruth is unique. It's it's at this sort of, in our Bibles anyway, it's at this interesting sort of place between Judges and then the rest of history, right? 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings where things just really get ramped up. It's right there in the middle. It brings together redemption for God's people, the inclusion of the Gentiles, and it does, uses that to establish this family from which a king is going to come. I mean, a king for Israel, David. But the king will come from there. Our passage specifically this morning in Ruth chapter 1 shows the dark and unlikely beginnings of all of that grand wisdom. So if you will, please stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, coming from Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were um, Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi died, and she was left with her two sons. These, the two sons, took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. 
and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the women, excuse me, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Verse 6, then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything, but death uh, parts, uh, parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Morah. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. Please have a seat. So fear... Anxiety, worry, depression, even despair, those are all experiences that folks here and all over express during this period that we're in, right now. For many, it's like a bad dream that you can't wake up from. I mean, many of you have talked about this. 
this unrelenting fatigue that you feel because of the circumstance called COVID that we are in. This pounding, right? This sort of relentless pounding of medical and economic and educational, relational impact that every one of us feel. There's a very real toll that the stress that you're experiencing right now has on you. In fact, that stress can eat away, for some more quickly than others, the ability to stand up against it, to cope with it. It's a real struggle. And what we're going through now with COVID, I mean, if you were already facing these kinds of struggles, that just amplifies it even more. So let me ask you this question. How much are you struggling to see your gracious, compassionate, merciful presence of the living God at work in your life? How difficult is it? You say it this way, maybe. Is it difficult for you to see that right now, where you are, right now, that He is for you? Is it hard to see that? I mean, does anybody feel like you're slugging through? wet cement? If that's where you are, I want to introduce you to this woman in the Old Testament we just read about. She comes out of darkness. She knows, and we'll see this, she knows that God is there. But she still struggles to see him. This is one of the things you've got to love about Scripture. It is so honest about what real human beings experience. We see in Ruth 1 a God who meets us right in the middle of our weakness. So we hope. That was, that was intentionally ambiguous. Right? Hope! To which you could respond, I'm trying! How? Why? Because you actually do have a God who meets you right in the middle of all the weakness. 
Ruth opens with this line, in the days when the judges ruled. I'm going to give you a quick snippet just so that you can kind of see how, how things were at this time where history picks up with Ruth. And let me just say this. The way that we're going to do this, just to sort of, this is a narrative. One of the fun things about stories and narrative is they do all kinds of things to you when you're not looking. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this narrative. And I want you to listen. As we walk through this narrative, I want you to pay really close attention to that little, those moments here as we're, as we're, as we're, as we're, covering this ground, I want you to listen to those moments inside of you where you go, oh, ouch. Where you get some twinge of something. Where you tense up. Those are the moments where you're starting to see that this isn't a story out there, but this is a story that you are part of. That this story is saying something about you. We're going to hear all about Naomi. See what you notice this story saying about you. Where you're weak. Where you're needy. Where you're struggling. Judges chapter 2, and this is just a really quick snippet. It's 2, 6 through 15. Captures it beautifully. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the, that the Lord had done for Israel. And Joshua, son of Nun, excuse me, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him within the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the hill country of, Eph uh, of Eph um, Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gosh. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that the Lord had done for Israel. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he gave them over to plunderers. Who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. That's the backstory. When Ruth begins in the days of, ju of the judges, that's the backstory. That's where Israel was, and it's obviously not pretty. It's a story of darkness and death. 
Judges will feature this horrible cycle of sin. Little mini exiles, you know, they go into oppression of a ruler. They cry out, and then God would deliver and free them. And then they'd go back into the same thing again. That's what was happening in the book of Judges. Ruth 1, chapter 1, zooms in on one particular family who was experiencing this time. I'll just summarize. This is verses 1 to 6. You have four people, Elimelech, Naomi. They live in Bethlehem. They've got got two kids, Malon and Kilion. Do you know what their names mean? Now, this is what's cool. This is where Hebrew stuff really just sort of blows off the page. So, this, is, here's, this sort of gets the irony. Right? You know what Elimelech's name means? It means, my God is king. Right? You know what Naomi's name means? Pleasant. My God is king. Pleasant. Right? That is the way it's supposed to be. You know what their, son, their kids' names? Oh, this is beautiful. This is a picture of exactly what Judges is talking about. You know what Melon means? Or um, ma, not, not, never mind. Melon means frail, mortality. You know what Killian means? Sick. Oh. And you want to hear some real irony? You know what Bethlehem means? House of bread. And what does Ruth 1, 1 through 5 show us? The house of bread is empty. Empty, people. Nothing. No, nothing in the cabinets. Famine. That's God's judgment. So already in the names of these people, in the names of this town, we are seeing the story unpacked. It's all going downhill. But it gets worse. It's almost like this sort of crazy reversal. It gets worse in response to the famine. Elimelech, he moves the family out to Moab. Now whether this is an example of God pushing his people out of the land or... It's just a demonstration of unbelief on Elimelech's party. My God is king, but not now. Either way, it turns out horribly for them because you heard this. Out there in the foreign country, Elimelech dies. Malon and Kilion die. All that's left in that place of darkness is Naomi and her two foreign daughters-in-law. Naomi is a widow. That's bad enough. She's a widow in a foreign land. Away. And you know what that means, right? She loses all economic and social protection and security. She's open to exposure now, right, from poverty. She, is, she becomes a prime target for oppression. 
Right? Those are real things that she faces out there in this land. She doesn't have her two sons or her husband. So who will protect her? Who will care for her in that place of darkness and death? That is a problem. But then verse 6. Don't let this miss, don't miss this. Then verse 6 happens. Listen to verse 6 again. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she heard the fields of Moab, excuse me, she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. God's grace breaks through. Bread returns to the people in Bethlehem. Bread's in the cabinet again. That visitation, we've said this before, that visitation is not just God coming to visit. Hey, it's, that's salvation language. That's redemption language. So she hears out there in the darkness, oh, something's happening over there. Right? Out there in the darkness, just at, way out there, she starts to see light. So she returns. She seems to have hope. Was that what you would think? That seems hopeful. God's restored the people. Yay. Naomi, she journeys back to the place of the house of bread. What's her response to God's grace? As we walk with her, again, again, as you walk with her over these next several verses, you're going to see... What emerges is weakness and frailty. It's a weakness and it's a frailty that is common to all the saints. It's a weakness and a frailty that is common to you. You have this. You experience this. So look at verse 7, 7 and 8. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. Oh. Naomi heard that Yahweh was blessing his people again. Again, she seems to be convinced of that much. That much is true. So she goes back. She returns, right? That returning, there's real covenantal uh, 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 significance to that word, returning. She's going back to where God is present with her people. So why does she say what she says? She returns, she calls her daughters-in-law return, to return also, but not with her. She tells them, go back to your own families. Why? Well, Naomi gives a few arguments for this. Right? E- each of them, I think, takes us deeper into where her head 
is at. And each of them helps us to have a clearer picture of what's going on in her heart. Look at the rest of verse 8 through 10. She tells them to return each to their mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And and, and, And they said to her, no, we will not return. In Naomi's first argument, you see this woman of compassion and faith. Naomi knows what it is to be a foreigner. That is what she is in that moment. And she knows what it is to be a widow, just like her daughter's-in-law. She knows the difficulty that is awaiting her. Because it's not just in a foreign land that she faces all of this stuff. It's when she goes back to, to, to the land of her people. She knows all that stuff. So there is an aspect where we might even see a compassion in what she's calling them to do. Go back to your mother's house because you'll be protected there. Go back to your family's house because you'll get a shot. You got a shot at something. In terms of faith, Naomi acknowledges that Ruth and Orpah have blessed her family. These women, what you see in Orpah and Ruth up to this point, is the word is chesed, right? That's that sort of Hebrew word for God's covenant faithfulness. But they're showing it. They're showing it to Naomi. They show a loyalty, compassion, mercy. All those things they've given to Naomi and her sons. It's what's interesting is that they are responding to Naomi the way that God responds to his people in the way his people are supposed to respond to each other. I will curse those who curse you. Naomi, she's part of that seed, that people from Abraham. Ruth and Orpah, those are the others that experience the blessing that comes through Abraham's seed. All kinds of theological ideas sort of bounce around in your head here. But at the end of the day, what we can say, it seems like Naomi wants good for them. She wants them to have rest. She wants them to have a husband. Those two things go together to find security, to be protected. Doesn't Naomi look like a realist here? Does she? She seems, it's not, she's not making stuff up. This is actual stuff that's real, that's going on, that's going to happen, that she faces, that they face. She seems like a realist. In calling her daughters to go back, Naomi looks like she's got a good grasp on life. In God's grace. We might be surprised at the way that Orpah and Ruth respond. They say, no. They refuse. Naomi holds out this potential blessing in their land, and they refuse to return. They want to return with her. 
They want to maintain this loyalty to her. We see this sort of contrasting faith, right? These two seem to recognize, are you kidding me? I want to be where your God is. Ruth, on the other hand, is saying, you don't want to be anywhere within spitting distance of me. Naomi, she seems resistant to this hesed that she's being shown by her daughters-in-law. So she offers another argument. Look at verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Here's more reason, right? More reasoning. Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back. Twice. Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? Twice in the argument, Naomi says, return. Go away. You stick with me and it's a dead end. You see, she has little hope. She says that if and if I had hope, and I don't have any hope, she has little husband, no husband, no children. If she had children, too long to wait on those kids to marry them. And if you did marry them, if, they, if Orpah and Ruth did wait on these new, this new batch of children to get married to uh, to, to Naomi's sons, then Orpah and Ruth would be too old to have children. You see the dynamic here, the problem. Again, seems very, very logical. The difficulty is that Naomi just talked about the faithfulness of God, didn't she? May God show you kindness in your own land. Her whole argument just a few minutes ago was grounded in the blessing that God would give them there. But here, she calls that in the question. So, you've got to wonder, right? Naomi, if God could bless them there... Why couldn't he bless them with you? Are you seeing Naomi's struggle here? Are you seeing maybe some of the the inner workings that are going on in her heart, the questions that are actually swimming around in her heart? There seems to be a disconnect. All doubt is going to be removed with what she says next. She says, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. It's difficult to know exactly what's meant there. She's either saying, My life is more bitter than yours, or she's saying, My my bitterness is... It's too much for you. 
By the way, it reveals her understanding of God. Naomi definitely sees God involved in her life. There's no doubt about that. His eye is on her. But how? By her read of things, he directs his power toward her in displeasure and wrath. Plagues her life with affliction and discord. In effect, she's saying, do you want to stay connected to someone with whom the Lord deals with like this? Do you really think you stay connected with me? That you're going to find the blessing that God has promised? Now, if she's right, then yeah, no one in their right mind would, leave, would stay with Naomi. You'd leave. You'd be smart to. But the point is, the lens that she sees through is that God is out to get me. And as the wise and great Medea would say, you don't want to get got. And then verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. We see now kind of, all right, well, what, what was the outcome of this argument? And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Did you hear another component of Naomi's lens that she's looking through there. Think about what Naomi is really asking her to do. Naomi is urging these women to return now, not just to their people, but to their gods. Urging them to this old way of life. To Chemosh. Right? The God of the Moabites. She's urging them to show allegiance to a God other than Yahweh. This stands out because Ruth is, I mean, excuse me, Naomi is an Israelite. She knows that Yahweh is the only true God. Right? She knows from Deuteronomy, you know, she didn't miss that day in Sabbath school when they went over Deuteronomy where it says, you know, who has a God like our God? Who, who does the things that our God does? Nobody. Everybody's supposed to look and see and say together with Israel, no one is like our God. She didn't miss that. We're gaining some significant information here. While you have this compassion that she does show her daughter-in-law in the foreground, what's going on in the background is something else. We see Naomi, a woman who is struggling with the weakness of faith. 
She's struggling. Though returning to the house of bread, returning to the place where God visited his people, we see Naomi recognize God's faithfulness. That's why she's going back there. But we also see one who questions God's faithfulness to her. She questions, is that for me? Really? Really? Is that for me? Do you see how the affliction that she's facing is wearing her down? And folks, this is where it gets really human. Okay? It's where it gets really human. The pain that she has had to deal with Maybe causing her to crumble in some ways. Surely none of us will be able to sit here and you cross our arms and shake our heads with Naomi. I don't know, maybe you can. But most of you know something about what she's facing. You find yourself out of control where you are in this place, right? Financial struggle for some of you is absolutely real. And I want to say, I want you to hear me say that. This is not sort of like a, a pie in the sky, you know. All of that bad stuff is just an illusion. Some of you are facing financial struggle right now. Job loss is real right now. Sickness is real. The loss of connection. I can't tell you how much I've heard that. The loss of connection is real. I mean, the impact of it. Loneliness. Deep, deep loneliness. And that may be surprising. I think that is surprising to some folks who are experiencing it. They didn't anticipate feeling so far away. From anyone. Being not alone. Right? We can all be alone. But to be lonely. To feel detached. Sort of cut from the dock. That can be a desperate feeling. We all deal with this. And we know it takes a toll on us. We all of us. Every one of us at one time or another. Think and talk like Naomi. We think God is far from for us. We feel that he's against us. Or worse, we feel that he's disinterested in us. But he doesn't really care. But I want to ask you something. Did you see God's grace right in the middle of all of that, in the middle of Orpah leaving. 
in the middle of all the weeping, in the midst of Naomi's final attempt to shove Ruth away, did you see God's grace? It's a simple, simple act. Right at the end of verse 14. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Ruth clung to her. Folks, that is not just this sort of sentimental kind of mourning of separation. I don't want to lose you. That is not the full import of clinging, although it has that aspect. Clinging, clung, we got covenantal language. That's relationship with God language. He clings to you. He, we cling to him. That's what it means to be in this covenantal relationship with him. That is clinging. It's holding on to. It speaks of the response that God expects from his people. This loyalty, faithfulness, obedience, commitment, love. That's what Ruth shows to Naomi. And then that physical expression gives way to words. And this is, that, you know, this is that thing we hear in weddings. And you may not even know where this came from. Some of you might have, right? You didn't know this wasn't a wedding thing. This is like a you know, people of God thing. Ruth said in verse 16, But do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there uh, will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth shows absolute covenantal faithfulness to Naomi. You understand what she's saying. She commits to the status of a foreigner. You get that. That is what she's doing. She is now, she's going to trade places. Do you hear Jesus here? She is going to trade places with Naomi. Naomi will go from being a foreigner to a woman who's living in her land. Ruth will take on the status of a foreigner as well as a widow. And she is going to do it because of faithfulness to Yahweh. He knows what this covenantal redemption is all about, Ruth does. Ruth shows herself here to be a woman of faith. She shows herself to be a woman of faith, but don't, don't, don't break this into sort of competitive oppositional categories. Be careful there. Ruth, the woman of faith, is not set up as an opposition to Naomi, 
the woman of weak faith. That is not the relationship. This is, oh, please, let me hear this. This is not a be like Ruth and not like Naomi. If you walk away with that, you will have missed it in the worst possible way. Ruth is not the woman of faith set up in opposition to Naomi, the woman of weak faith. Ruth is the woman of faith set up as a help to Naomi, the woman of weak faith. She is helping in her sacrifice, in her self-giving, in her clinging. That is, that's what Ruth is doing. And I'll read, let's read 18 to 22 and then we'll land this plane. This is almost, you, you can't make this stuff up. This is almost comical. How does Naomi respond? And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went, and, uh, went uh, on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? When the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought, brought calamity upon me. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Ruth has enacted this incredibly generous demonstration of covenantal love. And Naomi, okay. Can you imagine what that walk the rest of the way to Bethlehem must have been like? <laughs> That's kind of anticlimactic, isn't it? Really? Weren't you expecting, wouldn't you have expected Naomi to just, to just melt, right? That's what happens in the movies when this sort of thing happens. You just, the, the person melts. Nope. All right, I guess I can't convince you. Come on. And then it doesn't get any better when she gets to the town. Again, we see it sort of like on full display, her interpretation of her life. It's not, like, it's not unlike the previous interpretations. It's much the same, right? Now, but it's more direct at God. The Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. He's testifying against me. I mean, she's, there's, there's truth to what she's saying. She did go away full and has come back empty without. No denying that. But what has this done to her view of God? So Naomi seems consumed with the bitterness of her life. 
suffering the loss of her husband, the loss of her sons, the loss of any certainty of the future. All this, and this is the danger, made Naomi blind. She's turned in on herself. Bitterness is all that she can see. She couldn't see fully the grace of God's return to Bethlehem. And two, she couldn't see the grace that God continued to show her through her Moabite daughter-in-law who clung to her. All she could see was that bitterness. On the worst reading, you might say Naomi is this hateful, angry, old woman. On the worst reading. But even if that was the case, even if that was the case, think about what that tells us about our God. This woman shows herself struggling, weak in faith, only seeing God's sovereign hand of judgment, unable to see his tender care. Yet, and this is what you don't need to miss, people of God, it is precisely to that woman in that situation that God extends grace. It is to her. Far from shaking your head, stand in awe that this is how God responds to a people who struggle like that. Like you like all of us. Her bitterness and her struggle, they don't immobilize God. They don't cancel out God's mercy and grace. He's right in the middle of it. Much of the blessing that God plans for Naomi is not visible to us or to her as we are sort of weaving through this with her. Nevertheless, what this story is showing us is that he is still working out redemptive purposes. What it's showing us is that he really is there. That he really is here. This should bring us great solace. Our Heavenly Father has bound Himself to us in His Son. He's not walking away. He will not walk away. He's right in the middle of what you go through every day. He's not on the outskirts. You know, it's like you're here in the middle of all your stuff. He's not over here sort of going, all right, when you get it together, you come over here and see me. 
I mean, is that how you see him? You see him waiting on the outskirts, kind of looking at you, shaking his head. Good night. I swear if I could be any clearer. That's not what he's doing. He's not on the outskirts. He's right in the middle of it with us. Right here. He's working in ways that you and I don't understand. How is the Father clinging to you? He clings. He shows loyalty to us in His Son. So folks, let me say this. If you have nothing else to point to in your life right now, you could say, Greg, I I don't have anything concrete that tells me what you're telling me. If you don't have anything that you can point to. People of God, don't miss right now. Right now. This moment that you're in, right now. Don't miss it. We said it at the out, this is not like sort of, you know, sort of the jumping off point to something else. This is, we're not presenting something for you to take out there somewhere. This is now, right now. He's speaking to you right now. Through this story, he is telling you right now. I have not forgotten you. I have not left you. Don't miss it. Don't miss it in this, the table that we're about to share. The Lord's Supper. He's about to fill you. Right? Ready? Here it comes. He's about to fill you with bread. His son. He calls you to a table showing you intimate communion. Don't miss that right now. It gives you confirmation that he will not fail. Don't miss each other, brothers and sisters. As you hear these things, if you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't get it, I can't take hold of it, I don't see it, then that's very possible that that's where you are. How about this? How about we stand alongside you? How about we stand with you and we say, okay, we'll hold you up until you can see it, until you can take hold of it. You're not alone. We haven't forgotten you here. In all these ways, 
people of God, cling to your heavenly Father who clings to you. Take comfort that though you struggle, though you crack, and we do, under strain, our God has not forgotten us. He's with us. Amen? It's been a while. We do the Lord's Supper now, right? Okay, thank you. It's been a while. Sorry, it's been a while since I did that. If you'll go ahead and get your cup right. Oh, I forgot mine. Hang on. Again, you want to take that top part out, the bread, or that little wafer out, before you open the juice. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, For I have received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night... When he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said to them, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took a cup, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take and eat. Take and drink. Just pray with me as we go into song. Father, again, we thank you for your grace and your mercy to us. I pray for us as a people that you will give us eyes to see, that you will strengthen weak faith, that you will nurture strong faith and all of it will be with a view to helping us to see and hold fast to and cling to and love and know more deeply you and your son Jesus Christ by your spirit. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.